Bible app to uh, turning your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're going to be spending our time today. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and as we begin our time, we're going to be reading the entire chapter and then opening up God's word together. And so if you are physically able, would you please stand at this time in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace And a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So before we get into our text today, let's just briefly recap where we've been thus far as we spent the last, uh, what is now, this is our fourth week in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've had an introductory sermon and then a sermon in chapter one and a sermon in chapter two. Uh, 
In chapter 1, Solomon identifies himself as the author of the book, referring to himself as the preacher, and he brilliantly likens your life and my life to a breath, to a breath. That's the word picture he paints for us. Just like a breath is hard to hold in one's hand, our lives are slippery. They slip through our fingers before you know it. Just like a breath doesn't last very long, our lives are similarly short in duration. Just like you breathe in and you breathe out over and over again, our lives can sometimes seem like they are stuck on repeat. And just like we're satisfied after having inhaled and exhaled while breathing, we'll have to do it again before long. And so our lives are never really full or never fully satisfied. And finally, just like every breath has an end to it, so do our lives. Our lives are short term. Ultimately, death puts an end to our quests in life, our quests for greatness, our quests for profit, our quests for gain. And we're reminded that we're just part of the generation who came after the last one and before the next. It's not just that the whole of our lives are like a breath, though. Last week in chapter 2, we saw that our greatest pursuits, uh, even the pleasures to which we devote ourselves and our very lives, slip through our fingers without satisfaction that truly lasts. And today, we look at chapter 3, and we see Solomon, the preacher, combining the big picture, all of life, and the individual parts or seasons of our lives and shows us that Believe it or not, the fact that we lack control is the very thing that can bring us hope. That's so, that goes so against the grain of everything in me. The fact that I lack control drives me crazy. But we're going to see from God's word the fact that the sooner we come to grips, uh, the sooner we can come to grips with our frailty, the sooner you and I can embrace the fact that we're just us and we're not God, the sooner we'll see the hope and help that we desperately need that only can be found in God and God alone. So let's pick it up right now in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1, which says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Which brings us to our first point. Your life is full of incredibly complex seasons. Uh, your life is full of incredibly complex seasons. What Solomon says in verse 1 is then later fleshed out in verses 2 through 8. He couples different things together, usually in an attempt to illustrate the grandeur of everything that lies in between them. And the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree because I'd like to show you how David does the same thing in other parts of the Bible, namely in the book of Psalms. So if you would keep your place or keep your finger in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, but flip back to Psalm 103. Flip back to Psalm 103. And let me show you something there. Skip down. You know what? Don't skip down to anything. Psalm 103 is one of my favorites. Let's just read it from the beginning. Psalm 103, uh, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, take a look at this, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So you see in verse 11 where he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high are the heavens? They're immeasurable, uh, seemingly endless. How low is the earth? Uh, You can't get lower than the ground. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Wow, what a picture. God could, that immeasurable, that immeasurable space, God could fill that space with the love that he has for sinners like you and like me. So you see how David pairs two things together that are kind of opposites. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Take a look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, there it is again, two uh, polar opposites, the east and the west. They couldn't be further apart, and that's how far God has separated our transgressions, our guilt from us. That's how far away our guilt is from us, according to what God's word says. It's a beautiful, powerful word picture. So now when you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, looking back at our text today, Solomon does something similar in pairing two opposites together, and in doing so, encompasses everything in between them. Take a look at verse 2. It says, a time to be born and a time to die, right? The whole of life is captured there, the very beginning and the very end. Uh, There is a time for its beginning, a time for its end, and a time for everything that happens in between, And in Ecclesiastes 3, we're given 14 pairings like that, 14 pairings like that, seeking to be a complete summary of sorts of the seasons of life that you and I experience. And similar to your life and my life, those seasons are incredibly complex, incredibly complex. Some seasons are categorically good, right? They just, they are, they are definitely good. Some seasons are categorically bad. They couldn't be worse. Some are somewhere in between where there's good that's coming out of a hard season. And so you're thankful for the good that came out of it, but wish it would have come about through other means. We have incredibly complex seasons in our life. In Jesus' earthly life and ministry, perhaps this was seen most clearly in what? The Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where he, knowing what was coming, knowing about his death, knowing that he was about to climb on that cross and be sacrificed on behalf of sinners like you and like me, he asked his heavenly Father if it might be possible to accomplish it through other means. When he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's praying in earnest and in agony, so much so that his sweat become like great drops of blood. And yet the writer of Hebrews looks back on what Jesus did and says that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And so here he is in the garden saying, if there's any other way to do this, can we do it that way? He knows what's coming, but he says, not my will, but yours be done. A great thing is about to happen out of the result of a tragedy. 
And, and lots of times, seasons in your life can be that way. Unbelievably difficult, yet unbelievably good. How God redeems difficulties and trials that you and I have gone through for his glory and our good. And we look back on that and we see what God has done, and yet we would not be ashamed to say we would never want to walk through that season again. Because our seasons of life are incredibly complex. Jesus' life, your life, and my life are full of these seasons that are summarized in Ecclesiastes 3. And I put some in your outline. But your life is full of good seasons and bad seasons. Some of the pairings are pretty straightforward. There's good and bad set next to each other, right? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to love and a time to ate. But not everything is that straightforward. For example, look at verses 5 and 7. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to to keep silence and a time to speak. Uh, Sometimes it's the best thing to do for you to just keep silent. Yet other times that's a terrible mistake. Sometimes the best thing you can do is for you to speak a word that is well-timed, a word that in due season God can use in the life of another. And sometimes that would be wrong for you to open your mouth. These are incredibly complex seasons. Some of them are straightforward, good or bad, but then other times it kind of is like, oh, it depends on the season. Your life is full of things that are only good if they're done in the right season like that. But many of the seasons in your life are also just kind of full of ambiguity. Take a look at verse 6. A time to seek and a time to lose. It's just life. A time to keep and a time to cast away. It's just life. Is that good or bad? I don't know. It's just a thing. Sometimes we keep things. Sometimes we throw them away. Some parts of life are seemingly amoral, right? Without any real genuine good or bad or right or wrong aspect to them. This morning I looked for my shoes where they typically are and there they were. Was that great? I don't, yeah, I guess, better than losing them. But I just, that's just part of life. It's just, it's what I do. I drank a cup of coffee before preaching and I threw away the empty cup. It's like, wow, what a righteous man. I mean, not, not really. Like, there's just a garbage can. This is not amazing. It's just life. Something else that I noticed as I looked through this is that nearly all of the seasons of your life, especially the ones that are listed here, are intended to be lived in relationship with other people. Uh, Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Weeping and laughing are typically done with others as with mourning and dancing. Again, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. You don't embrace yourself. You're embracing another person or not embracing another person. Same thing with keeping silence and speaking to other people. Time to love, a time to hate, a time to war, a time for peace. Many of the pairings that Solomon lists here come with the assumption that others are involved in your life and you're involved in theirs. Speaking, loving, hating, warring, peacing. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. You're doing these things with other people. A friend, a family member, a spouse, a neighbor, even an enemy. Almost every pairing in the chapter highlights our connectedness to one another during seasons in between our birth 
and our death, and therein lies some of the greatest complexities in life. Because we're connected to different people and we have different relationships and different times with different people. And sometimes those times change. Sometimes we mourn over what the people with whom we used to laugh have done to us. There may be some with whom you shared fond memories in days gone by that you genuinely don't know how to even contact now. You don't even know necessarily if they're alive. Most of the seasons God gives aren't scheduled per se, right? But they're defined by the connectedness that we have with others. For example, in December of 2020, my last living grandparent passed away. So if I have no living grandparents, am I a grandson? I don't don't think so. Take a man who is a husband, but his wife passes away, so he's no longer a husband. He's now a widower. If he remarries, he's no longer a widower, but back to being a husband. But he's a husband to a different person, so although he's a husband again, he's a husband to his wife for the very first time. Do you see how those, those seasons are dictated? Not because he planned that, not because I planned that, but just certain life events happen, which change the seasons of life that we are in. They're often defined by our connection or lack of connection we have with others. I think the fact as you read through Ecclesiastes 3 that there's no real order, like there's no real chronological order behind the pairings, is just another reminder to us of how we lack control over these seasons. Now, you and I make very real, very responsible decisions each and every day. We're not robots. You chose to wear what you're wearing right now of your own free will completely. And still the seasons of our life are largely out of our hands. Verse 1 says there's a time for everything, but most of the seasons listed in the chapter, we couldn't make into appointments on our Google calendar, which brings us to letter E. We're often left wondering how our lives fit into the big picture, which we, quite frankly, have very limited access to. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Similar to what we looked at a few weeks ago, right? In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 3, he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And so I'm just curious. What about you? As you peruse through the season Solomon lists here, do some resonate with you more than others? Do you read through a season and you're like, that's, that's my life right now? Do you read through a season and you think, that was my life months or years ago? I can remember being in a season like that. Maybe some of those seasons bring tears to your eyes. Maybe those are tears of great joy. Maybe those are tears of unbelievable pain and sorrow. I mean, surely we can all relate to what's listed here in some way. In fact, quite frankly, 
You don't have to be a Christian or even remotely religious to relate to them. Nothing we've looked at in the first eight verses are uniquely Christian at all. What we've been looking at and discussing for what is now roughly the first half of this sermon could have been the topic of a song written by anyone from a beatnik in the 60s to a rapper in the 90s and everyone in between. I mean, what we've discussed thus far in Ecclesiastes 3 about the seasons of life is universally true, so much so that you can place these scripture verses to music and it resonates with nearly everyone. And that's what the birds did. The title of the sermon is Turn, Turn, Turn. That was a song written by or performed by the birds uh, back in the 60s. It was in the number one slot on the Billboard Top 100 charts in December of 1965. In fact, since their song contains biblical lyrics, fun fact, it holds the distinction in the U.S. of being the number one hit with the oldest lyrics. I mean... When you read through Ecclesiastes 3, there's nothing uniquely religious about them, the first eight verses, that is, just saying there's a time for everything, right? Time keeps on slipping. Steve Miller Band said that in 1976 is probably why they want to take the money and run. Kansas told us that all we are is what? Dust in the wind, 1977. All I know, time is a valuable thing. Watch it fly by as the pendulum swings. Watch it count down to the end of the day. The clock ticks life away. It's so unreal. Lincoln Park, 2001. Right? I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, what? It doesn't even matter. I practice that a lot. (laughs) Kids are like, is dad rapping in the... Yes, your father's dropping a verse. Just give him a minute. People have been thinking about and writing about and singing about the seasons of life, the passage of time, and the seemingly meaningless repetition of life for a long, long time, which is why the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, quite frankly, they resonate with everyone. So the question is this, what about us? You're like, we're not everyone, right? We are a chosen people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We're separated. What about us who are Bible-believing Christians? What about those of us who've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Is there nothing we get out of this chapter than anybody else who could listen to a song on the radio? Like, where do we go from here? Well, that brings us to point number two, point number two. You need to remember these times in your life are not the only times there are. You need to remember that these times in your life are not the only times there are. Uh, Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 3 says, for everything there is what? A season. Uh, The term season just brings about with it the idea of what? Change. For everything there's a season. This time will expire. This time has a shelf life. All of the seasons listed in the first eight verses come and they go. And so it's important for us to remember that these times in our lives are not the only times there are. Verse 10 says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. We're reminded that we are bound by time. But this is something you need to remember. God is not. We are bound by time, but God 
is not. That's important to remember. That's why we read what we did in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, you might look around and say, he has made everything. That sounds past tense. But again, God isn't bound by time like we are. There's no past, present, future with God. That's how we view life. That's the the world that we live in, which is limited by time and space. But with God, there just is. That's hard to comprehend because we're bound by time. But since God isn't, when Solomon says he has made everything beautiful in its time, we can take great hope in knowing that God is working. And although his work is not yet done, it's as good as done. God has a plan for you, a plan for me, a plan for, for, a plan for every single person on the planet and every single molecule all to work together for his good purposes. Verse 11 says, he has put eternity into people's hearts. You need to understand this. You're hardwired for eternity. You're hardwired for eternity. Everyone is. It's why the happiest of homegoings when someone leaves this earth and goes home to be with the Lord. It's why even when it's under unbelievably happy circumstances that we are glad that there's no more suffering, that there's no more pain, that they are experiencing in real time what we only know by faith. It's why when that happens, which is just great, is still sad. It's still unbelievably sad to us because we're hardwired for eternity. God did not create us for just life to just end. That's a result of the fall. That was not part of God's good design. It's sad because they're where we want to be. It's, we're glad because they finished the race and they're in the presence of God, but we're sad because they're no longer in the presence of us. When my grandfather passed away, we saw it coming as his health was failing. Different ones of us made different trips to visit, to bid him farewell. Even though we were told he was dying and we knew it was coming, guess what happened? When it actually happened, it took our breath away. You say, why? You saw it coming for like weeks. Because I'm hardwired for eternity. And seeing something coming and seeing that happening, it still (gasps) takes your breath away because I was not made for death. You were not made for death. You were created for eternity. You're hardwired for eternity. Verse 11, he has put eternity into people's hearts, hardwired for eternity, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done. We have this longing for something different. We have this longing for something better, a longing to be restored. We know there's more to life than just life. But we can't understand what God is doing because, again, we're bound by time and he's not. But this is the thing. We can be comforted with our limited access to the big picture because God sees it all. You see, that's what separates us from the birds or from Lincoln Park or from Kansas or from people singing a song or writing a poem or dropping a verse or doing whatever about the changing seasons of life is that if you are a Christian, if you believe in a sovereign, good, and gracious God, your lack of control on life doesn't completely frustrate you. It just makes you so incredibly thankful that God has all the control that is needed. You see, the lost and dying world that says, I can't control my life, that drives them to despair, that drives them to hopelessness, that drives them to feel helpless and feel like things are spinning out of control. But since you and I know that God is good, that God is great, that he always does what's best for his glory and for our good, the sooner we can realize that we are not God, 
the sooner we can realize that we are frail and finite and not in control, the sooner we'll be able to surrender our hearts and our lives to Him. We can be comforted with our limited access to the big picture because we know that God sees it all. It brings us great comfort and great hope to know that even though we are out of control, even though we are frail, even though we are weak, he is unbelievably strong. That's why Solomon says what he does in verse 12 when he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to men. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. In other words, we can genuinely enjoy life. We can genuinely enjoy life. We're not just like, ha-ha, hiding behind our Bibles. We just know that God is up in heaven doing something. No, we genuinely enjoy life. We can take great pleasure in our life. We can be joyful and do good. We can eat. We can drink. We can take pleasure in all that we do because it's God's gift to us. And we do all this because God is working. He sees the big picture and we can take great comfort in the fact that what he does lasts forever. We're bound by time. We're conceived, we're born, we live, we die, but God is not bound by any of those limitations. And verse 14 says that what he does lasts forever and nobody is going to add or subtract from it. God wants us to have the childlike faith that we hear about elsewhere in the Bible. It's not that he wants us to be childish, but he does want us to be childlike. He does want us to be childlike. My kids, especially when they're younger, if you have kids, you know your kids just, they just trust you. It's the most natural thing for for children to just trust their parents. They don't, when you're getting in in the car to go somewhere, they're not like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you have gas? Wait a minute. Is this thing insured? Wait, how how are you feeling? You feel alert? Look over here. Follow my finger. Can Can you drive? Are you okay? Your kids aren't doing that. They, they literally they just get in the car. They just, they just get in. Where they, they don't even know how you're... They, don't even, they may not even know where you're going. I've had my kids be like, where are we going? They just trust. They just trust. You don't have to lay out all of the details before you have them do something. When they go to... When my kids, especially the younger ones, I've said this before, when they go to bed and you just see the peacefulness with which they sleep when they actually sleep. You see how, how deeply they sleep and what's not. Sometimes you just, I just look at them. Do you ever just look at kids and you're like, it's amazing what's not on your mind? Do you ever think that? Like you look at your kids sleeping and you're just like, wow, it is unbelievable how much you don't know and how peaceful you are. You have no idea how much my property taxes went up. You're just sleeping just the same as if they hadn't gone up. It's great. You say, well, that's, that's ignorance. You, you can look at it that way. They just trust. Dad's on it. Mom's on it. What about you? When you look at your life, when you lay your head down to go to sleep at night, 
Can you think about your heavenly Father and say, you know what? Dad's on it. He's going to work it out. I don't know how it's going to be worked out. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when this season of life will end. I don't know when another season of life will begin. It's incredibly good. I hope it doesn't end, but I know it's going to end. It's incredibly bad. I hope it ends soon. There's certain things I can do, and I will do them to the glory of God. But at the end of the day, I need to go to bed and say, you know what? God's on it. That's what God is calling us to do. The more you can embrace your frailty, your lack of control, the more you can have that childlike, not childish, childlike faith, the more comfort you can take in not being in control because you trust the one who is. We can do this because we know God is working. Here's something else. We're also challenged by all that hasn't been made right yet, but that's the key word is yet. Yet. Uh, Verse 16 in Ecclesiastes 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I mean, we live in a world where we're constantly dissatisfied, discontented, and disappointed with what we experience. Oftentimes, even justice is unjust in some way, sometimes in multiple ways. Nothing is as God intended it to be. The the church isn't the bride that is worthy of Christ. At times, she's looking pretty rough. The body of Christ isn't whole, but seemingly fractured in in a multitude of ways. But here's the thing, friends. Here's the key. It's not that things aren't as God intended them to be, full stop. It's that things aren't as God intended them to be, yet. Yet. It's not that the church isn't a bride that's worthy of Christ, full stop. It's the church isn't a bride that's worthy of Christ, yet. Yet. It's not that the body of Christ isn't whole. It's the body of Christ isn't whole yet. God's not bound by time, so he's not pacing and frantic about the state of the church in the world. We who are bound by time and space need to be put in, it needs to be put in time-bound terms. And so the term yet really makes the difference. Things aren't abounding in fruitfulness yet. Things aren't as fair as they should be yet. Yet reminds us that that which hasn't happened will happen. It just hasn't happened. Yet reminds us that which hasn't transpired will transpire, right? Yet is what helps us not allow the past to be the best predictor of the future because we live our lives not according to trends, but according to the word of God, the promises of God. And we know that he will deliver because he always does and he never fails. Yet makes all the difference. And see, what we can do is we can be challenged by all that hasn't been made right yet but still hopeful because the the key word there is yet. Just because we're not seeing it happen doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Just because we're not seeing things made completely whole, completely restored back to how God originally intended them to be doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just means it hasn't happened what? Yet. And finally, if you look at verse 17, it says this. 
I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. You need to decide whether you're comforted, challenged, or concerned about the fact that one day God will make all things right once and for all. So see how the word right is missing in your outline? That's a typo on my part. And one day in heaven, outlines will not have missing words. I did that to see if you're... I did, I did it by accident. I did it because we're not in heaven yet. The outlines aren't perfect yet. You need to decide whether you're comforted, challenged, or concerned about the fact that one day God will make all things right once and for all. Some of us are greatly comforted by the fact that God will make all things right. We rest in God's sovereign, gracious control over all things. We know that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. You can hang up your fretting about. You can repent from your anxious thoughts and anger and frustration with circumstances and do your best to be fruitful where God has planted you, knowing he's working now and coming later and all will be made well. We take great comfort in that. Some of us are more challenged than comforted. This teaching perhaps calls to mind areas in your life that thus far Maybe you realize you have a little bit too much control or you think you have too much control. You have a a white-knuckled grip on something that is a good thing that you might be making a God thing. And it's one thing for me to hold up something I want to God like this, and it's another thing for me to hold up something I want to God like this. I will have it. This will happen. This is mine. I have it coming to me. You're going to do right. You're going to do this with my white-knuckled grip on something. Maybe this calls to mind in areas of your life that thus far you've refused to relinquish control and surrender to God. Maybe God is calling you to think of something that's really important to you that you're like this about that you need to say, you know what, God? You know what I want. You know what I desperately want. You know what I've been thinking about and praying for and what I want so, so, so badly that I'm going to trust you with it. And I give it to you freely I hope you give it to me, but if you decide to never fill my hand with this one thing, I'll trust your will more than mine. That's what we see modeled to us by Jesus Christ in the garden, right? Hey, Dad, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I would love to not do what I know that I'm about to do, but what? Not my will, but yours be done. And so maybe you're comforted, but you're a little more than comforted. You're challenged by this teaching, calling to mind areas of your life that you love to believe that you're in complete control over. You're so hesitant to give that over to God, to surrender that to God. And so you're challenged to think through what truly giving those to Christ will look like as you seek to follow him more closely. You need to decide whether you're comforted Challenged, but there's a third category. For some of you, when you read verse 17 and hear that God will come to judge the righteous and the wicked, uh, you're not comforted, you're not challenged, you're concerned. And let me tell you something you should be. Uh, You're not challenged, you're not comforted, you're concerned. 
And I don't want to assuage, I don't want to comfort you and take away that concern that you might have because I believe that could be the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention. You are concerned and you likely should be. Uh, Turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Take a look at verse 21. Not everyone who's... This is Jesus talking. He's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Some of you are concerned, and you should be. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, some of you are going through the motions when it comes to your walk with the Lord. But you're doing great. Like, you don't stink at this. You're checking all the boxes. You're showing up to church. You're giving. Earlier you sang. You're probably about to sing again. You go to community group. You went to camp. You do all the things, but that's just it. Jesus is just one of the things. Just one of the things that you do. He might even be an important thing. Betty's in your top ten. He might be in your top five. He might be top three. Here's the thing, though. You know in your heart he's not number one. He's up there, but he's not number one. And that's not because you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But he's not number one because he's not informing everything you're doing. He's not the lens. His word is not the lens through which you're viewing life and saying, how does what I want to do square up with God's word? I have a decision to make. I have a course of action that I need to, I need to, I need to choose what path to take. How does that line up with God's Word. Matthew 7 verse 24 says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. For those of us who have built our house on the rock, it's not that the house will never be destroyed. It's not that it's a perfect house, but we are building our lives on a sure foundation of Jesus Christ. We're trying our very, very best to live lives according to God's word. And where we don't, we seek to make corrections, course corrections. We seek to repent. We ask God to change our heart, to change our minds, and to change what we do. But ultimately, our house is built on the rock. And the storms of life, and even us thinking about God coming, God sending his son, Jesus Christ, God the son, to come back to earth, that doesn't scare us, that excites us. We're not like, oh, he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to make all things right. What if making all things right makes me bad? What if there's a bad thing for me? What if when he makes all things right, I'm finally shown for who I am or my heart's revealed and it shows that I'm really religious, but I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Those are people who did not build their house on the rock. That's why you're not comforted. That's why you're not challenged. When you hear about the return of Christ, you are concerned and you should be. 
Verse 26 says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Friends, God will make things right one day. For sure. Our Heavenly Father sent His Son so that you would have a shot that you would have a shot of having a relationship with Jesus so that by you placing your faith in Jesus Christ, finish work on the cross for sinners like you and like me, that we don't have to fear that day. We look forward to that day with great anticipation. Because God's made all things right between me and Him. Do you realize that? You look around in the world and you're like, this whole world is, is falling apart. It is literally going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, things have never been so difficult. I've never been this dismayed. I've never been so concerned. Those concerns are legitimate, but do you know what hasn't changed? My standing with God, because that has not been dependent upon my actions. That's dependent upon Christ's finished work on the cross. And because I have placed my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ, that has never changed. And today, that gift, that gospel, the good news is available to you who hears this message and you're not comforted, you're not challenged, but you're concerned. Friend, I want to tell you that your concern is a good thing. You should be concerned. There's a heaven again and a hell to shun. You will stand before judgment. When God comes and makes all things right, He will judge you. And if you don't have Jesus Christ as your advocate, there's nobody you can point to. There's no other scorecard you could say. You can't get in with somebody else. Nobody's going to carry you in and hope that you're too young to get a ticket. That's not the way it works. But you can be ready for that day, not by fixing your life, not by shaping up, not by going back in time. You can't time travel. You can't fix the things you've already done. You can be ready for that day if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and believe that what he did on the cross was enough to pay for your sins. That's the good news of the gospel, and it's available to you, yes, you, even now, even today. And all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Believe that Jesus did what he said he came to do. Believe that his father was fully satisfied with the payment that he paid on behalf of sinners like us. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And you don't have to be concerned about that day. You can be comforted knowing that you are in the hands of a mighty, mighty Savior. You can be challenged to change your life in different ways, and God will give you the enablement to do that, to change your life in different ways to be more pleasing to him. But if you are concerned today, that's actually great news. Don't ignore it. Don't swat it away like it's some annoying bug. Lean into it. Lean into it. There's a season and a time for everything under heaven, including your life. You are going to die. You can be very comforted by the fact that you can be ready for death, ready for judgment, because Jesus paid it all and nothing do you owe. Praise God. What wonderful, wonderful news. Uh, Father in heaven, would you cause us to
just rejoice in the truth of the gospel, would you cause us to be so moved by the substitutionary atonement that that Jesus Christ paid on the cross for sinners like us? Would you cause us to rejoice in who you are and what you've done and the peace and assurance that we can have, uh, not because of our record, but because of yours, not because of what we're doing, but because of what you've done. And Lord, would you move in the hearts of your people even now? Lord, would you cause them to be changed? Would you draw them unto yourself? Would you save souls today? Would you cause those of us who are neither comforted nor challenged but concerned to lean into that concern and to look to you until we receive the conviction that we need to come to you to confess our sins, to repent, and to be made right with you because of the gospel? We love you. Thank you that even though we are out of control, you're in control. Thank you that even though we are frail, you are strong. Thank you that when we are weak, we know we can see your strength acting and moving among us in ways that bring you glory and work for our good. Remind us of who we are in your sight. Precious, loved, saved, changing, and growing for your glory and our good. Amen.